Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting September 4th, 2015, we talk with analyst Joss Singh about India's resurgence of extremist Hindu violence and conservative politics. His essay for the WPJ summer issue is headlined, India's Right Turn. We'll also point out other top stories in the summer issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, a major foreign policy win for the White House that now has enough votes to ensure that its nuclear deal with Iran will go through, this despite objections by Republicans and some, but not many, Democrats. That being said, lawmakers on the president's side continue to express reservations about the deal and remain deeply troubled about Iran, its past record and future intentions. There also appears to be an understanding on Capitol Hill that even if Congress could somehow shoot down the agreement, there's no way that other P5 plus one members Britain, France, Germany, and particularly China and Russia would be willing to renegotiate with Iran, nor would Iran itself be willing to renegotiate. Meantime, what's the greatest threat to America's national security? The president says it's nuclear terrorism and eventually global warming. FBI Director James Comey says, however, it's the Islamic State and the incoming chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General James Dunford says it's Russia. And let's not forget about China, North Korea, cyber hacking, and Iran itself. The list goes on. So what's the greatest threat out of all of these? The correct answer is probably all of the above, a reflection that the security environment is so splintered with no one overarching threat but multiple threats. The retiring Joint Chiefs Chairman General Martin Dempsey saying, quote, Today's global security environment is the most unpredictable I have seen in 40 years of service. A litany of problems to be sure for the next president, no matter who he or she may be. For World Policy Journal, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. We cannot accept violence against any religion on any pretext, and I strongly condemn such violence. My government will not allow any religious group belonging to the majority or the minority to incite hatred against others overtly or covertly. Mine will be a government that gives equal respect to all religions. India's Hindu Prime Minister Narendra Modi drew predictable applause from followers early this year with his pledge to stem a rising tide of religious violence, mostly by extremist Hindus against Muslims and Christians. But it seemed long overdue to many in those target groups and to outside human rights observers, although international outrage and response has been in notably short supply. Religious violence has a long history in India, of course, 
but critics see an escalation under Modi that could undermine the nation's economic progress as well as its democratic values. Joss Singh, a former legal analyst at BlackRock Private Equity Partners and graduate of Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, considers the threat for the summer issue of World Policy Journal in an article headlined, India's Right Turn. We talked about it earlier for this podcast. Joss Singh, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you for having me. You relate a current rise in violent Hindu nationalism to the smashing victory of Modi's Hindu Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, in last year's elections, both in terms of Hindu thinking and their new political free hand on national and local levels. Say more about that. Sure. So I think it's important first to remember to keep in mind exactly how big of a victory this was for the BJP. There's more than a one and a quarter billion people in India. 66% of the people voted. A third of all of the votes went to the BJP. So it was a monumental victory for the BJP and for Narendra Modi. Uh, right after he was uh, elected, in the months afterwards, there was a spate of violence that occurred in the capital city uh, that hadn't been seen before, or at least not in such an open way. For example, there were attacks on churches, five attacks on churches uh, that had, for which there were no political recriminations for a long time. And uh, it is directly linked to the rise of Hindu nationalist sentiment in India that came with the rise of that party. And we can't forget Modi's personal connection with one of the worst recent episodes of religious violence while he was chief minister of Gujarat state. Remind us what happened and the state's role after which he was banned for years from visiting the U.S. Yes, exactly. So in 2002, a train in Gujarat was halted and was set on fire in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood called Godra. Uh, Fifty people were burned alive in that incident. Um, In a one-man truth commission, it was later found by the government that the fire started from the inside. Nonetheless, uh, Modi had pounced on the opportunity uh, to make a major political incident out of the affair by claiming that it was the work of terrorists. And because it was in a Muslim neighborhood, uh, he immediately he and the government together uh, just showed that displayed the corpses in the state capital, Ahmedabad. Uh, they ordered the display, which led to more sectarian uh, violence. Uh, more than a thousand Muslims were killed. One hundred and twenty-five thousand were made refugees. And it was very clear the government had a hand in it because of the level of speed and organization with which the attacks occurred, the use of voter registration logs, the use of trucks and canisters, uh, gas canisters, and uh, just the the dramatic impact that had taken place within a few days. You said the fire started from the inside, but I think I read in your piece that it was determined not only did it start in the inside, but it was accidental. I mean, it was not set. It was a an accidental uh, f- from the equipment on the train. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. So the fire was started from the inside and was determined by this 
one-man truth commission that it was accidental in nature. Yes, that's correct. The worst outbreak of state-sanctioned violence since 2002, uh, that episode, exploded two years ago in Uttar Pradesh, just months before the general election that made Modi prime minister, and so clearly uh, involving the political atmosphere. Tell us how it began and how bad it got. Sure. So in the district of Muzaffarnagar, which is in Uttar Pradesh, uh, there was an altercation that uh, resulted in deaths of two Hindus and a Muslim. This one incident led to a massive outbreak of violence that led to the deaths of 60 people, and uh, 40,000 people were made refugees. The vast majority of them were Muslims. There was an investigation by the Delhi-based Center for Policy Analysis. What were the factors it uncovered? The Delhi-based Center for Policy Analysis found that in the two months prior to the violence, BJP leaders were actively involved in spreading false malicious rumors against Muslims through accusations of what is known as love jihad. And love jihad is the idea, mostly fictitious, that Muslim men are uh, consciously attempting to woo women um, so that they Hindu women so that they can stanch the growth of the Hindu population Hindu population which is 80% of India India's Supreme Court also weighed in with a stern ruling that's right the Supreme Court uh, held the state government responsible uh, it held the state government responsible for being negligent in not first anticipating that the communal violence was supposed to was going to occur and then taking the necessary steps to prevent it i mean those were basically those were the two things that the, uh, the supreme court held the state government responsible for one not taking the steps to prevent it in the first place and then not uh, basically mitigating the impact that it had once it was already occurring uh, but the high court ruling did not mean a return to normal for target groups with the kind of hateful prejudice and uh, practice on the rise. Say more about the loss of customers to minority businesses and the loss of business itself for Muslim meat dealers where cows are sacred. As one important idea that is often not mentioned in the coverage of uh, religious violence is the long-term impact to the communities that are affected. There is a fracturing of communities along religious lines that has dramatic consequences for the members of the various religious groups involved. Um, so, for example, in Muzaffarnagar, merchants who decided to stay, who were not made refugees by the violence, who decided to stay um, in the district, could no longer sell uh, their products to Hindu customers because the uh, Hindu customers had a new animosity towards the Muslim uh, merchants. And the whole meat trade was affected because of uh, the, the, the degree to which uh, cows are sacred to Hindus. Yes, this is a campaign that has been going on since the time of Gandhi, but only now under this new Hindu national sentiment has it succeeded. Uh, in places like Bombay, the sale and consumption of beef uh, is now forbidden. And of course, this has a dram dramatically disproportionate impact on Muslim-owned businesses, um, Muslims that are involved in the slaughter of cows. 
Um, well, as uh, I should say, the Dalit members of the Dalit community, Dalits are the are considered the lowest rank of the Hindu caste system. Tell us about the man who's become a foremost religious and political leader for extremist Hindus. Yes, so Yogi Adityanath has been a both a religious leader and a political leader for quite some time. Uh, he's been a successful BJP a member of parliament since the late 1990s, and he is basically crafted a very successful career from using hateful rhetoric about uh, destroying mosques and uh, converting Christians back to Hinduism in order to foster a sense of strong sense of Hindu identity. So this is an important uh, campaign strategy that is used by the BJP in general, uh, electoral campaign strategy, that is, that in the wake of any sort of violence, first, uh, sometimes they are the cause, sometimes they are not the cause of the violence to begin with, but after the violence, uh, they definitely... Uh, take the opportunity to make sure that the religious minorities are held accountable before the facts are known. And then the public now will have a stronger sense of Hindu identity, and those who are considered Hindus anyway, or consider themselves Hindus, will, would now feel a strengthened sense of Hindu identity, and then show that, reflect that at the ballot box by voting for the BJP. I was fascinated by the extent to which Hindu women have come under pressure uh, to fight a, a rising Muslim population with their own fertility. That's right. Um, this is also something that is new as far as the parliament is concerned, because now we have a member of parliament, Sakshi Maharaj, who has uh, openly announced that Hindu women should have four children uh, in order to prevent the Muslim population of India from exceeding the Hindu population, even though the Muslim population is currently about around 15% and the Hindu population is around 80%. And uh, this formulation of uh, an existential threat caused by the Muslim community, again, feeds a populist Hindu nationalist sentiment that is reflected at the ballot box. As the political tide turns towards the Hindus, you see signs of severe damage to the country's future. First in education, uh, by the imposition of religious teachers and curricula not geared to a technology-dominated future, and with damage to its legal system as well. Talk about hints about revising the Constitution. Yes, so as far as the Constitution is concerned, there have been not, there have been some pretty oblique references to taking out words that are that were added to the constitution in the 1970s but have been cornerstones of the constitution those words being secular and socialist and the removal of those words would signal a religious state essentially or at least the possibility of having a hindu nationalist state and uh, under the modi government uh, on the india's 66th republic day in january these two words were taken out of the preamble to the constitution so it is definitely something to monitor closely
Let's be clear, they weren't taken out of the Constitution itself, but in sort of a reporting or a celebration of that day. Advertisements, uh, right. In yes, advertisements. Advertisements ah, right. issued by the government. Mm-hmm. But there were some rather insensitive Supreme Court scheduling decisions to which even one of the justices objected. That's right. So the Supreme Court Justice Kurian Joseph, who is a Christian, said that he, he expressed pain, anguish, and concern about the way secularism is being tinkered with. And uh, he said this to one of the most prominent newspapers in India. So even members of the highest echelon of the uh, Indian legal system have openly stated their belief that secularism is under threat. Because the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice, scheduled uh, sessions on uh, religious holidays of other religions. Exactly. This is something that was never done before. Uh, Christmas and Easter are national holidays in India, and now it seems that under this new regime, or this new, under the Modi government and the BJP party, uh, the country is drifting rightward, and the rights of religious minorities to celebrate their holidays as national holidays is no longer being respected. You write about the reluctance of India's international allies to apply pressure against state actions that provoke, permit, or fail to punish religious violence, and you're notably critical of uh, what U.S. President Barack Obama has said and failed to say. That's correct. Um, I would say that I do give a lot of credit to President Obama for issuing a very veiled rebuke to Modi and his Hindu nationalist ideology when he visited uh, earlier this year. He said that India will succeed as long as it's not splintered along religious lines. But less than three months later, he wrote a tribute to the Prime Minister in Time magazine that was entitled India's Reformer-in-Chief in which Modi is romanticized and coddled as a devotee of yoga, which actually just dovetails with the old Hindu nationalist ideology. So he's not been consistent. That is my major concern with President Obama, is that he has not been consistent in the way that he has spoken about Modi and his treatment of religious minorities. Let's look at some of the action steps you propose. First, action by the Prime Minister going beyond the condemnation we heard at the start of this conversation. Exactly, because I don't think that it's uh, sufficient for the Prime Minister to just openly state that freedom of religion ought to be respected. That would be the case ordinarily, but because the Prime Minister is a member of the BJP, a Hindu nationalist party, which is very intimately tied to a large network of right-wing Hindu nationalist groups, it is crucial for the Prime Minister to silence members of his own party and members of those affiliate groups in order for that sort of idea that he's openly flaunting, the the idea of respecting religious minorities to be respected by the public. Because otherwise, it seems that he is only trying to mollify uh, foreigners, such as President Obama. 
below the level of the prime minister, you say Indian states should repeal anti-conversion laws. What do they require and how is that connected to religious violence? Right. So the anti-conversion laws uh, is, first of all, so the freedom to convert to another religion is the freedom of religion, right? It is the cornerstone of the freedom of religion. If you do not have the freedom to reconsider your religion, then you um, then there's effectively no freedom of religion. And now, at least six six Indian states have these anti-conversion laws, which uh, prescribe prison sentences for those people who are actively trying to convert Hindus to other religions. It doesn't work the other way around. And it puts and, pressure on 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 uh, Indians who may have been Hindu three generations earlier, but have long converted, and whose parents long converted, but they could be considered in violation of these laws laws for the prior conversions. Right. So for the members, uh, for for example, Indian Christians whose grandparents originally converted uh, to Christianity, they are still considered by these laws, because these laws are very carefully crafted, they're still considered Hindus for all intents and purposes, even though they have been Christians for a long time now. And so if they attempt to convert others to Hinduism, then, uh, sorry, to, to Christianity, they will be punished. But if they themselves are converted to Hinduism, they're not the, the converters, those people who try to proselytize them, are not punished at all because they're considered Hindus to begin with. You ask for more international pressure. What forms would you prescribe? What would be realistic and effective? The international pressure that I recommend it mainly takes the form of India's strongest allies, uh, especially the United States, making a very vocal and consistent appeal to the government of India to respect religious freedom, and not only by just making blanket statements about respecting religious freedom, but by putting that into practice. You say no reforms will take hold until the Indian government and justice system punish those responsible for provoking or permitting past violence. But post-apartheid South Africa found reform more feasible after bypassing trials in favor of non-penal truth commissions. Why not that mode for India? So the uh, my major concern is, is that there has been no accountability I think that the Indian government should hold those responsible for inciting religious violence accountable. That is my primary concern. As far as how, what form that accountability takes shape, I think that is for India and the Indian people to decide if they do decide that they would prefer something like the non-penal truth commissions then I would support that. The more important thing is that those who are responsible for violence are held accountable. Just Singh, thank you. Sure, thank you for having me. Just Singh is a graduate of Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and a former legal analyst at BlackRock Private Equity Partners. His article in the summer issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, India's Right Turn.
also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about China smothering skies, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question. Who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we speak with Elisa Goldberg, another graduate of Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, focusing on security policy and global media. Her essay on contrasting conditions for Jews and Judaism in the WPJ summer issue is headlined Fear in Istanbul, Relief in Prague. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. 